Chapter 106 List number 5 Six undershirts, six shorts, six handkerchiefs Has always puzzled scholars principally because of the total absence of socks. Woody Allen, The Metterling List, Getting Even, New York, Random House, 1966, page 8 It was during those days, no more than a month ago, that Leah decided a vacation would do me good. You look tired, she said. Maybe the plan had worn me out. For that matter, the baby, as its grandparents said, needed clean air. Some friends lent us a house in the mountains. We didn't leave at once. There were things to attend to in Milan, and Leah said that nothing was more restful than taking a little vacation in the city when you knew you'd be going off on your real vacation. Now for the first time I talked to Leah about the plan. Until then she had been too busy with the baby. She knew vaguely that Belbo, Diotalevi, and I were working on some puzzle, and that it occupied whole days and nights, but I hadn't said anything to her about it, not since the day she preached me that sermon about the psychosis of resemblances. Maybe I was ashamed. I described the whole plan to her, down to the smallest details, and told her about Diotalevi's illness, feeling guilty, as if I had done something wrong. I tried to present the plan for what it was, a display of bravura. Leah said, Pow, I don't like your story. Isn't it beautiful? The sirens were beautiful, too. Listen, what do you know about your unconscious? Nothing. I'm not even sure I have one. There. Imagine that a Viennese prankster, to amuse his friends, invented the whole business of the Id and Oedipus, and made up dreams he had never dreamed, and little Hanses he had never met. And what happened? Millions of people were out there, all ready and waiting to become neurotic in earnest, and thousands more ready to make money treating them. Leah, you're paranoid. Me? You? Maybe we're both paranoid, but you have to grant me this. We started with the Ingolf document. It's natural when one comes across a message of the Templars to want to decipher it. Maybe we exaggerated a little to make fun of the decipherers of messages, but there was a message to begin with. All you know is what that Ardenti told you, and from your own description he's an out-and-out fraud. Anyway, I'd like to see this message for myself. Nothing easier. I had it in my files. Leah took the paper, looked at it front and back, wrinkled her nose, brushed the hair from her eyes to see the first, the coated part better. She said, Is that all? Isn't it enough for you? More than enough. Give me two days to think about it. When Leah asks for two days to think about something, she's determined to show me I'm stupid. I always accuse her of this, and she answers, If I know you're stupid, that means I love you even if you're stupid. You should feel reassured. For two days we didn't mention the subject again. Anyway, she was almost always out of the house. In the evening I watched her huddled in a corner, making notes, tearing up one sheet of paper after another. When we got to the mountains, the baby scratched around all day in the grass. Leah fixed supper and ordered me to eat because I was thin as a rail. After supper she asked me to fix her a double whiskey with lots of ice and only a splash of soda. She lit a cigarette, which she does only at important moments, told me to sit down, and then explained. Listen carefully, pal, because I'm going to demonstrate to you that the simplest explanation is always the best. Colonel Ardenti told you Ingolf found a message in Provence. I don't doubt that at all. Yes, Ingolf went down into the well and really did find a case with this text in it. And she tapped the French lines with her finger. We are not told that he found a case studded with diamonds. All the colonel said was that according to Ingolf's notes the case was sold. And why not? It was an antique. He may have made a little cash, but we are not told that he lived off the proceeds for the rest of his life. 
he must have had a small inheritance from his father. And why should the case be ordinary? Because the message is ordinary. It's a laundry list. Come on, let's read it again. A la ellipsis Saint-Jean, 36 P. Charette de Fin, 6 ellipsis Entier avec Sayel, P. ellipsis Les Blancs Montiax, R. ellipsis S. ellipsis Chevalier de Prouin pour la ellipsis J. N. C. Six fois six en six places, chacun fois vingt à ellipsis, cent vingt à ellipsis, Iset et l'ordination, al donjon li premier, i le second just issue, qui ellipsis pan, it al refuge, it à Notre Dame de l'autre part de l'eau, it à l'hôtel des publicains, it à la pierre, trois fois six avant la fête, ellipsis, la grande poutre. A laundry list? For God's sake, didn't it ever occur to you to consult a tourist guide, a brief history of Provins? You discover immediately that the Grand Jodine, where the message was found, was a gathering place for merchants. Provins was a center for fairs in Champagne, and the Grange is en Rue Saint-Jean. In Provins they bought and sold everything, but lengths of cloth were particularly popular. Drap, or dra, as they wrote it then, and every length was marked by a guarantee, a kind of seal. The second most important product of Provins was roses, red roses that the Crusaders had brought from Syria. They were so famous that when Edmund of Lancaster married Blanche d'Artois and took the title Comte de Champagne, he added the red rose of Provins to his coat of arms. Hence, too, the War of the Roses, because the House of York had a white rose as its symbol. Who told you all this? A little book of two hundred pages published by the Tourist Bureau of Provins. I found it at the French Center. But that's not all. In Provins there's a fort known as the Donjon, which speaks for itself, and there is a Porte au Pain, an Église du Refuge, various churches dedicated to Our Lady of this and that, a Rue de la Pierre Ronde, where there was a Pierre de Sang, a stone on which the Count's subjects set the coins of their tides, and then a Rue des Blancs-Manteaux, and a street called Le Grand Putmus, for reasons not hard to guess. It was a street of brothels. And what about the Poplicans? In Provins there had been some Cathars, who later were duly burned, and the Grand Inquisitor himself was a converted Cather, Robert Le Bougre. So it's hardly strange that a street or an area should be called the place of the Cathars, even if the Cathars weren't there any more. Still, in 1344... But who said this document dates from 1344? Your colonel read thirty-six years after the Haywane, but in those days a pea made in a certain way with a tail meant post, but a pea without the tail meant pro. The author of this text is an ordinary merchant who made some notes on business transacted at the Grange, or rather on the Rue Saint-Jean, and he recorded a price of thirty-six sous, or crowns, or whatever denomination it was, for one or each wagon of hay. And the hundred and twenty years? Who said anything about years? Ingall found something he transcribed as 120A. What is an A? I checked in a list of abbreviations used in those days and found that for denier or denarium odd signs were used. One looks like a delta, another looks like a theta, a circle broken on the left. If you write it carelessly and in haste, as a busy merchant might, 
A fanatic like Colonel Ardenti could take it for an A, having already read somewhere the story of the one hundred and twenty years. You know where better than I. He could have read it in any history of the Rosicrucians. The point is, he wanted to find something resembling post centum viginti annos patebo. And then what does he do? He finds it repeated several times, and he reads it as iterum. But the abbreviation for iterum was ITM, whereas IT means item, which means likewise, and is in fact used for repetitious lists. Our merchant is calculating how much he's going to make on the orders he's received, and he's listing the deliveries he has to make. He has to deliver some bouquets of roses of Provins, and that's the meaning of R ellipsis S ellipsis, Chevalier de Provins. And where the colonel read Vengeance, because he had the Kadosh Knights on his mind, you should read Jeanchet. The roses were used to make either hats or floral carpets on feast days, so here is how your Provin message should read. In Rue Saint-Jean, thirty-six sous for wagons of hay, six new lengths of cloth with seal to Rue des Blancs-Manteaux, Crusaders' roses to make a Jeanchet, six bunches of six in the six following places, each twenty deniers, making one hundred twenty deniers in all. Here is the first. The first to the fort. Item, the second to those in Fort Aupin. Item, to the Church of the Refuge. Item, to the Church of Notre Dame across the river. Item, to the old building of the Cathars. Item, to Rue de la Pierre Ronde. And three bunches of six before the feast in the Horse Street. Because they too, poor things, maybe wanted to celebrate the feast day by making themselves nice little hats of roses. My God, I said, I think you're right. Of course I'm right. It's a laundry list, I tell you. Wait a minute. This may very well be a laundry list, but the first message really is in code, and it talks about thirty-six invisibles. True. The French text I polished off in an hour, but the other one kept me busy for two days. I had to examine Tritanius at both the Ambrosiana and the Trivulziana, and you know what the librarians there are like. Before they let you put your hands on an old book, they look at you as if you were planning to eat it. But the first message, too, is a simple matter. You should have discovered this yourself. To begin with, are you sure that Les Trente-Six Invisibles Séparés en Six Bandes is in the same French as our merchants? Yes, this expression was used in a seventeenth-century pamphlet when the Rosicrucians appeared in Paris. But then you reasoned the way your diabolicals do. If the message is encoded according to the method of Tritanius, it means that Tritanius copied from the Templars, and since it quotes a sentence that was current in Rosicrucian circles, it means that the plan attributed to the Rosicrucians was none other than the plan of the Templars. Try reversing the argument, as any sensible person would. Since the message is written in Tritanius's code, it was written after Tritanius, and since it quotes an expression that circulated among the seventeenth-century Rosicrucians, it was written after the seventeenth century. So at this point, what is the simplest hypothesis? Ingolf finds the Provam message. Since, like the colonel, he's an enthusiast of hermetic messages, he sees thirty-six and one hundred and twenty and thinks immediately of the Rosicrucians. And since he's also an enthusiast of cryptography, he amuses himself by putting the Provam message into code as an exercise. So he translates his fine Rosicrucian sentence using a Tritanius cryptosystem. An ingenious explanation, but it's no more valid than the colonel's. So far, no, but suppose you make one conjecture, then a second, and a third, and they all support one another. Already you're more confident that you're on the right track, aren't you? I began with the suspicion that the words used by Ingolf were not the ones taken from Tritanius. They're in the same Kabbalistic Assyrio-Babylonian style, but they're not the same. 
Yet if Ingolf had wanted words beginning with the letters that interested him, intratanius he could have found as many as he liked. Why didn't he use those words? Well, why didn't he? Maybe he needed specific letters also in the second, third, and fourth positions. Maybe our ingenious Ingolf wanted a multi-coded message. Maybe he wanted to be smarter than Tritanius. Tritanius suggests forty major cryptosystems. In one, only the initial letters count, in another, the first and third letters, in another, every other initial letter, and so on. Until, with a little effort, you can invent a hundred more systems on your own. As for the ten minor cryptosystems, the Colonel considered only the first wheel, which is the easiest. But the following ones work on the principle of the second wheel. Here's a copy of it for you. Imagine that the inner circle is mobile, and you can turn it so that the letter A coincides with any letter of the outer circle. You will have one system where A is written as X, another where A is U, and so on. With twenty-two letters on each circle, you can produce not ten, but twenty-one cryptosystems. The twenty-second is no good, because there A is A. Don't tell me that for each letter of each word you tried all twenty-one systems. I had brains on my side, and luck. Since the shortest words have six letters, it's obvious that only the first six are important, and the rest are just for looks. Why six letters? Supposing Ingolf coded the first letter, then skipped one, then coded the third, then skipped two, and coded the sixth. For the first letter I used wheel number one, for the third letter I used wheel number two, and got a sentence. Then I tried wheel number three for the sixth letter and got a sentence again. I'm not saying Ingolf didn't use other letters, too, but three positive results are enough for me. If you want to, you can take it further. Don't keep me in suspense what came out. Look at the message again. I've underlined the letters that count. Now, we know what the first message is. It's the one about the thirty-six invisibles. Now, listen to what comes out if you substitute the third letters using the second wheel. Chambre des Demoiselles, l'aiguille creuse. But I know that. It's en aval d'entretat, la chambre des demoiselles, sous le fort du Fréfossé, aiguille creuse. The message deciphered by Arsène Lupin when he discovers the secret of the hollow peak. You remember that entretat, at the edge of the beach, stands the aiguille creuse, a natural castle, habitable inside, the secret weapon of Julius Caesar when he invaded Gaul and later used by the kings of France, the source of Lupin's immense power. And you know how lupinologists are crazy about this story. They make pilgrimages to Entretat, they look for secret passages, they make anagrams of every word of Leblanc. Ingolf was no less a lupinologist than he was a Rosicrucianologist, and so code after code. My diabolicals could always argue that the Templars knew the secret of the peak, and therefore the message was written in Provence in the fourteenth century. Of course I realize that. But now comes the third message. Third wheel applied to the sixth letter of each word. Listen. Merde, j'en ai marre de cette steganographie. And this is modern French. The Templars didn't talk like that. Shit, I'm sick of this hermetic writing. That's how Ingolf talked, and having given himself a headache coding all this nonsense, he got a final kick cursing in code what he was doing. But he was not without shrewdness. Notice that each of these three messages has thirty-six letters. Poor Pau. Ingolf was having fun, just like the three of you, and that imbecile colonel took him seriously. Then why did Ingolf disappear? Who says he was murdered? Ingolf got fed up living in Auxerre, seeing nobody but the pharmacist and a spinster daughter who whined all day, 
So maybe he went to Paris, pulled off a good deal selling one of his old books, found himself a buxom and willing widow, and started a new life. Like those men who go out to buy cigarettes and the wives never see them again. And the colonel? Didn't you tell me that not even the detective is sure they killed him? He got into some jam, his victims tracked him down, and he took to his heels. Maybe at this very moment he's selling the Eiffel Tower to an American tourist and going under the name DuPont. I couldn't give in all along the line. All right, we started out with a laundry list. Yet we were clever enough, inventive enough, to turn a laundry list into poetry. Your plan isn't poetic, it's grotesque. People don't get the idea of going back to burn Troy just because they read Homer. With Homer, the burning of Troy became something that it never was and never will be, and yet the Iliad endures, full of meaning, because it's all clear, limpid. Your Rosicrucian manifestos are neither clear nor limpid. They're mud, hot air, and promises. This is why so many people have tried to make them come true, each finding in them what he wants to find. In Homer there's no secret, but your plan is full of secrets, full of contradictions. For that reason you could find thousands of insecure people ready to identify with it. Throw the whole thing out. Homer wasn't faking, but you three have been faking. Beware of faking. People will believe you. People believe those who sell lotions that make lost hair grow back. They sense instinctively that the salesman is putting together truths that don't go together, that he's not been logical, that he's not speaking in good faith. But they've been told that God is mysterious, unfathomable, so to them incoherence is the closest thing to God. The far-fetched is the closest thing to a miracle. You've invented hair oil. I don't like it. It's a nasty joke. This disagreement didn't spoil our weeks in the mountains. I took long walks, read serious books, became closer to the child than I'd ever been. But between me and Leah there was something left unsaid. On the one hand she had put me in a tight corner and was sorry to have humiliated me. On the other she wasn't convinced that she had convinced me. Indeed, I felt a pull to the plan. I didn't want to abandon it. I had lived with it too long. A few days ago I got up early to catch the one train for Milan, and in Milan I received Belbo's call from Paris, and I began this story, which for me is not yet finished. Leah was right. We should have talked about it earlier, but I wouldn't have believed her all the same. I had experienced the creation of the plan like the moment of Tiferet, the heart of the Sephirotic body, the harmony of rule and freedom. Theo Talevi had told me that Moses Cordovero warned, He who, because of his Torah, becomes proud over the ignorant, that is, over the whole people of Yahweh, leads Tiferet to grow proud over Malkut. But what Malkut is, the kingdom of this earth, in its dazzling simplicity, is something I understand only now, in time to grasp the truth, perhaps too late to survive the truth. Leah, I don't know if I will see you again. If not, the last image I have of you is half asleep under the blankets a few days ago. I kissed you that morning and hesitated before I left.